The sermon I will share with you this afternoon was composed by Dr. Wes Bradenhoff from the Free Reformed Church of Launceston, Tasmania. And the sermon is about providence, as we find that in Lord's Day 10. He selected for his scripture reading two passages, the first chapter of Job and Romans 8, verse 38 to 39. Job chapter 1, you'll find on page 576 of your pew Bible. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God, And shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed, they've killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, 
the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Now turn to Romans chapter 8. starting at the verse 28. You find that on page 1301 of your pew Bible. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the first born among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. When then shall we say to the, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As text, we will read Lord's Day 10. Find that on page 525 of your book of praise. 
What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is His almighty and every-present power whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruit and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm and confident, we have, have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, the whole Bible is a feast for the soul. So said Ambrose, the fourth century church father. And at this feast, we find all sorts of dishes, including delicious dish presented to us in Lord's Day 10. The biblical teaching of God's providence is comfort food for hungry pilgrims. And as we make our way through this broken world, which is not our home, God provides spiritual food to strengthen us, encourage us, and lead us forward. This food is sweet, and feasting on it makes us realize we're not alone on our pilgrimage. God is with us. And in fact, not only are we not alone, we're also upheld by our Father's hand. And so this afternoon, we're considering the biblical doctrine of God's providence. And we'll see how Christian pilgrims are in good hands with God, their Father. We'll consider what this means for our past, our present, and our future. It's fair to say that many of us are given to reminiscing about the past. We often think about years gone by and things that happened, good and bad. Perhaps you lie in bed at night and memories come rushing back to you. Perhaps there are memories you cherish. Perhaps there are memories that you wish you could forget. And maybe there are just some memories that are just there. In any case, what we do with these memories has a lot to do with what we confess in Lord's Day 10. This is especially the case with the memories we wish we could forget. As you reflect on things we said and did, or things that others said and did, things that happened, we need to remember who our God is and what He was doing in the midst of all that. We confess from the Scriptures that He was there, and He was actively involved. In answer 27, we say that when we speak about God's providence, we understand we understand that to mean his almighty and ever-present power. Note those words, ever-present. Those words point us not only to the present, but also to the past. 
God is God. And his power does not change. So when he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures today, we also know he did the same thing 20, 30, or 40 years ago. He's always done so. When we confess that he governs everything so that nothing comes by chance, we confess that for today, but also for the past, God did not start being God yesterday. Moreover, he did not start being your father yesterday. And in other words, he's always been exercising that power in love for you. His fatherly hand has always been at work in your life. We find that truth clearly taught in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I'll repeat that. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. When we think about the past, these words are extremely precious. In everything that has happened in the past, God was working for your good. Even the most terrible things you wish you could forget, even those things which you thought were the work of the devil, God was working those things to bring good to you someday. Maybe that good hasn't come yet. Perhaps it will uh, come sometime before it does. And when it does come, maybe you won't even realize it. Perhaps it will be sometime before it does, and when it does, you will realize it. But God has given his promise. He was not sleeping when those bad things happened in the past. God doesn't take coffee breaks. He will take all things that happened in your past, good, and bad, and make them good for you, somehow, someday. He promises that behind every frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Brothers and sisters, you must trust his promise and believe him. Because of Christ and what he has done for you, God is your Father And he loves you. So today, when we reflect on the past, how do we do that? We can take our cue from answer 28. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. When we don't understand why something happened, our tendency is to be impatient. We're impatient with God because he hasn't told us why. We want an answer, and we want it now. And this is especially true when it comes to the adversaries we've faced in in the past. When this is us, we need to pay attention to those passages of Scripture which teach us to wait on God. For instance, in Psalm 38, David is being chastised by God, and he cries out to him, But God gives him no answer. Then in verse 15, he says, I wait for you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. He will wait on God. 
And that's another way of saying David will be patient until the answer comes. The answer might be the full explanation we, we might want, but the answer might also be our father's gentle, gentle admonition to one of his children. You will have to just trust me. If I loved you enough to send my son to die for you, you can trust me on this. Look at the cross, and you know that you can trust me. Look at the cross of Christ, and you can see how I can bring the greatest good from the most horrific suffering. I did that for you. Trust me with this too. And when there have been good times in our past, we can be thankful. Thankful in prosperity. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 10, we hear Moses speaking to the people of God. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord for the good land he has given you. Here the people look back at what God did for them in giving them the promised land. And they praised him and thanked him for that. So it is to be with God's people today as well. When we look back over the years and we see clear evidence of the good that God has done for us, naturally we thank Him. Keeping that in mind, you can hardly imagine a Christian birthday, wedding, or anniversary celebration that doesn't explicitly thank and praise God for blessings received. Thankfulness and prosperity is just part of what we're all about as God's people. And that also refers to prosperity we've been given in the past. So as we look back over our pilgrimage in years gone by, we need to see we've been in good hands. God the Father has been there sustaining us carrying us along, even though sometimes the picture has not always been clear to us. The picture may not be clear, but his promises certainly is. You see, the problem is not that God was not there. The problem is that we had a hard time believing the promise that he was. So we pray. We pray for more grace and that God would help our unbelief so that we do believe and embrace the beautiful promises that he has been our help in ages past. A few moments ago, we read that well-known passage from Job 1. You were reminded of how God allowed Satan to take everything away from Job. We also saw that God had been at work in Job's life. Verse 1 tells us right away, that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was a believer who lived in God's ways. So God, so God was not out, of, uh, out to destroy Job for his sins. God was not disciplining him for something he'd done wrong. But nevertheless, God allowed Satan to take everything away from Job. 
God was in control of what happened there. And he knew that all that happened to Job would ultimately be for him, for, be good for him. It would help Job to see God's power. Job's faith in God would become stronger through these trials. So Job's son and, da- and daughters were taken away from him. All his animals were taken away. And nearly all his servants were killed. Job's now poor, lonely man. And all he had left was a foolish talking wife and three so-called friends. Now, if Job's story had happened today, a lot of people would look at it and say, poor guy, look at all his bad luck. It was just one thing after another for poor Job. Hopefully his luck will turn around soon. But is that what Job said? No. Instead, we hear him saying in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knew that God was in control. In his present misery, Job could even praise God. Job knew that there was no such thing as bad luck. Instead, there's a sovereign God who actively upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Do you see where we're going with this? As we journey through this world, we recognize that this is our Father's world. He's the sovereign God, and He will not tolerate any competition, even from things that don't even really exist. He doesn't tolerate competition from idols, and we all know that idols are not real, at least not in their power to do anything good. He also doesn't tolerate competition from luck or chance, things that are also not real. They're only real in people's minds. So as those who believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we simply don't talk about luck or chance. God is sovereignly in control of everything, even the mundane, like the roll of a dice in a game or the shot that hit the crossbar. He's sovereign. Why do we sometimes talk as if he isn't? We do that when we use words like luck. If we use the word, we may not, if we use the word, we may not mean it, but we're given credence to the existence of such a thing. Then we're saying, even if we don't mean to, that God is not in control. He's not sovereign. I'm sure we don't want to, uh, to say that. So rather than talking about luck and chance, as Christian confessors, we explicitly speak about God's work in our lives, even with the mundane like the hairs on our head and those tiny birds flitting around outside. And in doing this, we more and more bring glory to our sovereign. Our Father in heaven, we want to be a missional and outward-looking people, don't we? 
Well then, in how we speak, let's always be clear that the Creator is in control. As Proverbs says, in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. By doing that, we help people see that He is the great God of heaven and earth, who not only made everything in the past, but keeps it all going today as well. Today, in the present, we need to believe and then also talk and act as those who believe. And God will use that to bring more people to himself. The sovereignty and providence of God is a precious teaching of Scripture, and we should guard it carefully. Sadly, there are several popular Christian writers who would rob you of this doctrine. Today, there's a popular false teaching called open theism. Open theism is acknowledged by those who hold to it to be the logical and consistent conclusion of Arminianism. Basically, open theism uh, teaches us that God is not sovereign. Rather, he makes room for man's free will. And in his essential being, God reacts and changes according to what man does. According to open theism, God does not know anything about the future, and God does not ordain all that happens. When we get surprised by something that happens in this coming week, God will be surprised too. He won't see it coming any more than we will. Consequently, people who hold to this view often talk or write about God taking risks. Anytime someone says that God's taking a risk, you know you're dealing with someone who holds to this false teaching of open theism or has been influenced by it. There's much more to this teaching, but those are the important points. Open theism represents the rejection of what we confess in Lord's Day 10. The doctrine we confess in Lord's Day 10 is biblical, and for that reason alone, we need to guard it and cherish it. And not only is it biblical, it's also given to us as good news. After all, what comfort is there believing that God is subjected to luck, chance, or so-called human freedom? Where's the good news with a weak, emasculated God? What's so great about a God who loves you but has no power to help? What comfort there is, is there in believing that God depends on anyone or anything? Really, what comfort is there in believing what's not true? But there is comfort for yesterday and today when we believe that the sovereign God is there. He does care, and he is in control. That's comfort for yesterday and today, but also for the future. As believers, we don't have to guarantee, we don't have a guarantee of life on easy street. As those who believe in Christ, sometimes we will have hard times 
This is taught in numerous places in Scripture, but perhaps uh, nowhere more clearly than in James 1. In the second verse, James already speaks of this when he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials are by definition hard times. James points out that believers will face these in the future. And when we do, there's a certain kind of attitude we need to adopt. It's the attitude of Christ himself as he journeyed through this veil of tears, as Christ uh, traveled through the valley of the shadow of death, as he suffered his whole life, he counted it all joy. Not only that, but he also was patient and endured what God brought his way, knowing it, it would be for good. As believers, we're called to bear our crosses as the Savior did. Think of Romans 8, verse 17, which tells us we are co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, as we face adversity in this life, Christ will dwell in us through his Spirit and conform us to his image. That includes suffering, learning patience through trials and tests. James 1, verse 3 says that you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. So as we look to the future, we pray for God to develop in us steadfastness and patience for the trials we'll face. We pray that with the firm hope that nothing through these trials one day we will share in the fullness of Christ's glory. We also pray for God to develop thankfulness in us when he brings prosperity across our path. When we have prosperous times, we can't begin to think we did it for ourselves, that we have a right to be proud of ourselves. We can't begin to think we did it for ourselves, but that, we, that we, this would be a worldly approach, as those in Christ will be wanting to focus all our attention on God and His glory, giving credit where credit is due. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 17, and elsewhere, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In our future, there's no room for glorying in human achievement, only room for more praise to be given to the sovereign God of grace and power. And that's why Paul also tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, to give thanks always, even in bad times, but especially in good times. We should be praying to God and thanking Him. So, brothers and sisters, as you look ahead to the future and all it brings, remind yourself to always thank God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Last of all, we can also know and believe for the future that because of Christ, God is our Father, and because of Christ, that, we, that what He did, God will not stop being our Father. Again, 
savor those beautiful words of Romans 8, 38-39. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely nothing can separate you from the sovereign, loving Father. Nothing. That's God's promise for you in the future. And you can take that promise to the bank. You can know that God will never break it. He didn't yesterday. He will not today. And certainly will not tomorrow. Amen.